welcome everyone to The Behavioural Investor, the final episode of season two, episode number 10. We have a very special guest today, very appropriate for the theme of the podcast. His name is David. Would you like to tell us what your profession is, uh, the time where you are, and a bit of an update on COVID-19? So I'm David Fanner. I work at Ogilvy Consulting Paper Science Practice as an analyst. Really, we do behaviour change. That is our main thing, but we apply it creatively. My time zone is currently 10 in the morning on Sunday, which is very different to you. You've already had your Sundays. And the COVID situation is actually quite cheery. Like, I went, just went to um, grab a flat white, which I know is contested. is Australian or New Zealand. Um, we can find out later. And I saw all these ads, which were just, you know, taxi companies saying, you know, welcome up, like, sort of hanging in, hanging out, like, it feels a general sense of things are getting better in the UK, which is a great feeling right now. Great to hear things are improving. It seems like the curve's going in the right direction around the world now. Never know, you might be getting Australian tourists soon. Pretty much. I mean, there's, there's green lists now. We've got green, amber and red lists or different places we can go to. You just think that if you're on that list, well, your, your tourism is just you know, ding, ding, ding. You're doing great things this summer. Your profession does sound entirely relevant. Um, to the point of our podcast, and it's a real privilege to yeah, capture your time uh, for, for an hour here. Could you tell us uh, whether or not you have a, a number one intellectual investing or, or behavioral science uh, hero, pre- preferably from the last category? <laughs> hmm. Do you know, there, there's one that I've had for years, and this is the one who got me into behavioral science, um, and that is Rory Sutherland. But the thing is, I've now sort of achieved my dream job. This now, this man is now my boss's boss, so it feels a bit chummy to, to mention this. So there's another one, actually, which um, came across a few years ago. This is a guy called Nicholas Christakis. Um, and really, he looks at networks and the power of networks, you know, how ideas spread through a network, how a disease spreads, which we've all become really familiar with now. Like, for example, social change is sigmoidal. It goes in an S shape. You know, it starts very, very slowly, and then it just catches on like fire. Um, like Me Too, for example, or BLM, sort of simmering along in the background, then boom, like... Things spread through networks, you know, ideas. Um, so I, I think he's a great one, I think, because anyone who is sort of inspires you to then pursue a load of effort down a certain route, I think is a bit of a hero to me, to be honest. Like, if you mention a book today, which now sets off an entire different venture of thought for me, I think that that's a great thing. So I think, yeah, Nicholas Christakis is, is a great example, actually, because um, yeah, really got me into networks a few years ago, and now I sort of see the world through 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 networks and how things are all connected to each other. Yeah, well, that actually reminds me of how I came across you. I, I literally just asked you, "Can we interview on Twitter?" And, and you're making me think about the idea of propagation um, yes. and, and how ideas can be propagated at scale. Hopefully, um, we can we can we can propagate what what you're going to tell mm. us about. <laughs> interesting to think about networks because it leads to the next question about investments and I know you've obviously done a fair bit of reading around networks and those ideas has that ever lead led on to you uh, an investment that you thought was worthwhile or, or avoiding something for example um, either because of its network effects in the underlying business or not oh that's a really interesting question I, I've personally not um not, not applied this to to investing. Um, but one thing I did realize was sort of a, a light bulb moment. It's like, it's not actually the value of the company or the value of anything. It's just if we all agree it is essentially. And this made me think with Tesla, for example, as, as a good example of like, no idea on the fundamentals of the company. Um, I sort of understand it's sort of bit of hot air, but like from a network point of view, that's kind of okay. Because if 7 million people think it's okay and it's valuable, that doesn't matter. That, that's fine. So I think like there's enough Elon Musk fanboys out there to keep this stock kind of puffed up quite a bit. But from a network point of view, you know, there's as long as people believe it. So it does make me think as well. GameStop is another one that you know it's spread through the network. This sort of idea of this one, and if there's enough people within a network who all agree on something, then surely you know, I mean, it, the, the stock goes up. You know, whether or not the the company is fundamentally valuable. So it does make me think, actually, like if we were, you know, it's the, the constraint is how, how visible something is in the network. And the more visible it comes, the more people will invest in it. So I suppose if you were to play the network, it's like, how can I make this the most visible within the network? You know, and as soon as you see one person who is very um, 
has influence in the network. If, for example, if, if Warren Buffett suddenly drops a load into Bitcoin, that's going to shoot up because we trust him. So like by looking at him as a, a point, a network point, um, you can then, I don't know, you, you could either plan this from an intervention point or you could just observe it, that when this person, the cool kid on the playground, does his one behavior, then the second coolest, the third coolest, the fourth coolest will then yeah. follow that behavior. So I suppose identifying the cool kids, um, you could definitely approach this as investing. Just if you had, I don't know, social listening and you look whenever people with a certain amount of followers tweeted something, a stock mentioned maybe, you know, that's probably fairly predictive that other people start to invest in that too from a sort of network perspective. So I've, I've not tried this, but, you know, theoretically it, it's there, there for the taking. You, you didn't fall victim to the influence of Elon Musk um, on SNL. No, no, no. Um, but I do see Dogecoin right now is going through the roof and I'm feeling a slight bit of FOMO. I know it's basically gambling, but, you know, the fact is these returns are ridiculous. Just from Elon Musk tweeting it. So just pursuing what you have invested in, um, you, you've been very sensible. Mm. Yeah, I, I basically decided that, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop going after specific companies because that goes up and down. And there's certain companies like Adobe, I fundamentally trust in. I, I know them. Um, I know the financials. I know the company. I sort of have faith in them. But, you know, it's a lot of effort to get to that level where you really feel confident about a, a company. So what I've sort of said to myself is, Do you know what, just chuck it all in ETFs or indexes or, you know, just a fold of stocks is what I need to be doing, just spreading the risk, I think. And um, it's been good for me, to be honest. When you look at the returns, it's, it's consistent and it's predictable. And I think the challenge, though, is going to be, oh, this thing's going absolutely bananas. Let's take some money out of the ETF and put it in as growth stock. Um, so I think it's, I'm still early days. So in a year's time, we'll see how much is still in ETFs. Um, but that is my current plan, just because, you know, it's just a savings account plus is how I'm seeing stocks at this point, not this magical beast, which is going to make millions. That's an interesting comment that you make. You'll see in a year's time where you are in, in terms of that plan. So does that, is that an indicator of the um, stage gate or time frame that you're looking at to make a, a change? I think it's just the realisation that we are so present biased as people and we just want to fiddle with our stocks. And so, like, I'm saying my plan right now is to do ETFs, but um, I sort of recognise that that takes a lot of, I don't know, dedication, actually. So I'm just realising, just because, you know, I realise how people work and that we, we like to make these present decisions, not the future decisions. Um, so the test will be in a year's time, what percentage of my portfolio is an ETF? Just recognising that I know I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to make a decision at some point where something's going really well in another thing, do I put more money into that? Um, but no, I'm, I'm thinking long-term with, with, with this. I'm thinking this is going to be something that's here for 10, 15, 20 years. What's your percentage spread at the moment between ETFs and, and other? I think it's more like 40, 40 or 50 at this point. I'm sort of transitioning out of stocks into, into ETFs. And I think I'd like to get to a point where maybe 60, 70%, maybe even 75% is, is ETFs and just like see it more as a savings account than anything else, to be honest. It's, it's very similar to the approach that I'm taking as well. Until I can prove that I'm a, a successful active investor, most of my portfolio is going to be in either ETFs or index funds. You were mentioning maybe one year and a, a gradual process. A time frame that's been on been in my mind since the first episode has been 108 years, though. How would you respond as an Aguilby consultant to a client coming in and saying, design me a behavior regime so that I can be successful over that time period, making a billion dollars through consistent investing only in index funds? Would you laugh me out of the office or do you think you could do something? Uh, I mean, we, we definitely love, we relish the challenge, to be honest. Um, and I've, I've been thinking about this for the last week, actually, um, a lot, actually, because I think it's a really, really interesting challenge. And it's just because when we talk about all oh, these really difficult behavior challenges, we talk about things like pensions, which is, you know, 30, 40 years away. 
But what you're asking here is literally double that and you won't even be alive for it. So it's like, it's a massive behavior. Um, so I think the first step I think would be um, breaking down the brief because I, I, it's not one brief, this is many briefs. And from first thought, it's really like, um, I wrote these get who to statements um, of like, so what is the objective? First of all, we, we want to be really tight with this, which you've already been very tight with, but you know, uh, interventions that have specific objectives just perform better. Um, and I think even scaling back this a little bit would be the, the thing of like, what's the first step that we need to achieve to then get to the second step? So, I mean, I, I think there's, there's really at least two briefs. The first one is like, get, let's say 18 to 34 year olds, whatever the age group is, um, who don't currently save or don't currently invest in this way to the first behavior, start investing with the intention of their children, their children doing the same. That's the first one to start now. Um, and then the sort of challenge two after that is like get, I don't know, maybe 18, 34 year olds again, um, whose parents have started this dynasty, whatever you like to call it, um, to then continue investing in the dynasty. Like there's actually very different behaviors there. And so sort of like a brainwave moment this morning where I realized this is, um, this is an acquisition thing to start with, but it's also heavily, heavily retention. And so I sort of start to think, well, where, where is this problem being solved elsewhere? Re retention as a, as, a, as a business problem. Um, because of course, if you're a subscription, if you're um, we're just, you want your customers to repeat, there's a lot of learning there, which we can probably, probably draw on. So I, I'd start with that actually. First of all, a strong brief that we can, a manageable brief. Um, with clear objectives. And I think then a behavior change model could be really helpful here. Um, so I, one that I might suggest is Combi. I don't know if you're familiar with this, doing a Combi analysis. But Combi. essentially, it's, yeah, it says C-O-M-B. Um, yeah. uh, and they, they each stand for something. So uh, the B is for behavior. So say the behavior is we want to get um, Ben to, we're in the office, we want to get Ben to walk up the stairs instead of taking the lift in the office. Um, or capability is the first one. Does Ben have the physical capability to do this? You know, ben is going to need legs for this. That is a, that is a fact. Um, or at least means to help that. So, Show us your legs, Ben. <laughs> uh, I need a bit more strengthening uh, exercises, I think. But uh, hopefully I can get up one flight of stairs. Actually. Okay. And then, but say we find you can only get up one flight. It's like, okay, that's a physical barrier. What can we do? We're going to put a stair lift for the last last one from the second floor here. Um, and then the one might be um, mental capabilities. You know, do you understand the task? What's the sort of knowledge barriers at play, which I think is already a massive one for you investing. Um, and then the next one, you're doing capability is motivation. And there's, there's reflective motivation, which is sort of the rational, you thinking about the problem. Then there's automatic motivation, which is, you know, stuff like, um, how, is you, how are you subconsciously being influenced by these things where it's, you're not really rationally thinking about it, but it's having an influence. And the research says that 95% of all decisions are made automatically. Only 5% are really properly, properly, like I decided to do this, which is nuts. Then the third one, yeah, it, honestly. So motivation, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want to, maybe you're, um, maybe you're just a bit, bit tired today, for example. Um, so you're not feeling very motivated, or maybe, I don't know, you were heavily primed by um, a lift. Maybe you, you walked in, you walked in and you saw an advert for a lift. You're, you're heavily influenced by like, oh, today's a lift. Um, and then the third one is opportunity. And there's, there's physical and social. So the physical opportunity is like the lift design. Is the lift like 50 meters away? Or is it 50 meters closer? The stairs are like 50 meters away. You know, the mm. physical opportunity of that is just so much harder because naturally you're going to walk into the one that's easiest. Um, and then socially, you know, do you identify or does your office identify as, you know, stair walking people? Like, are you a stair walker or you're a lift taker? You know, there might be a bit of divide and that is a social barrier. It's nothing to do with your capability or motivation. It just, you feel like a weirdo doing this behavior. So I think I would start to approach it like that. You know, what is a, a combi analysis to work out? Where is the, where's the greatest need, um, in terms of this challenge, the brief that we decided to to work on. So C was is a capability. What was O again? Opportunity. Uh, opportunity, physical and social. Okay, motivation is M, I guess. Yeah, that was and, automatic and reflective. Okay, and B is behavior. 
that's where I'd start, I think. Start with some big diagnosis phase to work out, you know, is this, I mean, for example, capability. Um, I don't know how to invest in the first instance. There's going to be a point where people don't know how to invest. Mm. You know, that's a capability issue. You're going to have to like educate people to a level that they can even understand this, mm. you know, both, you know, physically and, and mentally, because, you know, a lot of people, it's a, it's a different world. You know, the motivation side, it's like, well, what do I get out of this? You know, 100 years, um, I'm not going to be here. That's like a, that's a really big one, that one. Like, it is. And, and that, that when um, we first had that discussion in that episode, like I knew that we, we had to, that was the number one issue we had to solve. Um, and I, I think actually in the second episode where we interviewed Tom, the clinical psych, I used the term dopamine drought because we got mm -hmm. into a bit of discussion about how um, we could use hormones basically to juice us up um, for, I guess, the, the automatic decision-making and it somehow to motivate mm -hmm. us. Um, yeah. So in, in your consulting experience, do you have, have you worked on projects where you have had a task, I don't know if it's from the government, like from a, a nudge unit or something like that, where they want to encourage uh, behaviour that persists over the long term? I've never worked on something this long term. I mean, mm. the biggest one, the most maybe related is um, food waste is something I've worked on, which is just a massive environmental scourge. Like it's worse than aviation. I think from memory, it's 31% of global emissions. Like it's really bad. If, you, if you've been wow. there, it's, it's like 15 times worse than the plastic it's in. This is a similar one where it's like, we can't just do one behavior. This is not like, make sure more people click onto this specific thing on a website and we'll make the button bigger maybe or something, like make it more salient. It's like a whole system of behaviors. I think that that's one, anything where it's, because it's similar, it's, it's environmental and it's beyond beyond us, the, the impact of this. We have to work now for future benefit, which we don't really see now. So I, that's definitely one that I've, I've had to work on and I think my conclusion with these things is it's no one thing like I'm really interested in systems thinking and you know we often we're solving things at component level and optimize this thing optimize this thing but like unless you're optimizing the whole system you're just not going to make the right change like there's there's no one magic bullet for this solution for sure behavior. just reflecting a bit more on um and maybe just to check some of these ideas um there's a couple of terms for the same concept that we've come across. One is delay discounting, and another one is hyperbolic discounting, which is basically about the idea that something that is a long way into the future, especially something that, as you've said a couple of times, is beyond our lifespan, the value of it um, dramatically decreases. It's like a, uh, it's a hyperbolic function um, mm. where almost it becomes impossible to be motivated by it once you get beyond a certain time threshold. So, yeah, I'd be interested to know if you have any comments about how to amplify the meaning of something to compensate for the, the delay discounting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is massive. And it reminds me of, um, I forget his name, Luca something. He spoke at Nudgestock last year, which is um, the world's largest festival of behavioral science. So we run um, behavioral science and creativity. But he, he speaker last year said, like, you know, putting the incentives in the present is really key. Um, because if, for example, if we want to get people to wash their hands in the office, um, you know, we could give them a pint at the end of the month. Well done, well done you, we give them five pounds or, or whatever. Um, but actually, if you just give them nice soap, they'll do the behavior. Like that's way more motivating because the incentive is in the present instead of some future reward, which is not motivating. But I think one thing that really is coming up to me, so if the, the provocation here is how might we um, put the incentives in the present because the payoff is, you know, three generations later. So the provocation, how might we put incentives in the present? And it sort of made me think of what, what can we learn from heirlooms um, and things that are passed down from, from generation to generation, like that, all of that stuff, even religion is, is one that's passed down. We can learn a lot from that from that because it's, it's still here, you know, five generations, thousand years later. Um, and I think one way actually is but time priming, getting people to think in this future sense. So I don't know if you're familiar with Zimbardo. He did the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah. Um, that's what he's most known for. But actually he's got this whole other sphere of, of work that 
not many people know about, and this is um, time perspectives. And actually there's as many as, I think it's either six or nine time perspectives that we shift in and out of throughout, throughout the day. So there's like prenatal is like before birth, which if you're Buddhist, you know, that's a big thing. Um, what was happening in my life beforehand to affect me now, then there's like past negative, like our bad times or like past positive, the good old days, which, you know, you think of Trump, Brexit, all these things, it's like, it's take back control to the good old days. It was better behind us. Then it's like hedonistic, like really in the moment, like I want pizza, I don't want vegetables, like this would be good now. Then I think this is where it gets interesting, which I think is where you can start to sort of tie away this, this hyperbolic discounting is future positive, future negative. So how do we get people to think more positive about the future? Um, or even beyond that is transcendental beliefs. Because this is what religion is, right? It's like, do things in your life now, which are then going to benefit you later. So like, don't, don't get really drunk tonight because that's bad for you, your body, your body's a temple, because this is going to affect you later in life. Beyond, when, you, when you've died, this will affect you, these decisions you make now. So I think we really need to be thinking of like, how can we get transcendental beliefs? Because this really has to elevate beyond you, actually, that if we are going to have a long-term behavior, we need to have some emotional significance to that. So, yeah, one, I like this idea of activating people emotionally. And because another thing that's come up um, uh, in our, this journey we've gone on in what's now, uh, we're up to our 20th episode. Early on, we, it sort of, it became clear that most people's response to the investing challenge when it comes to thinking about it behaviorally is try to remove um, the potential for behavioral factors, especially to drain all of the emotion out of it. Mm. And, you know, I, I thought that sounded like a pretty good idea. And, you know, we had a great podcast guest, um, uh, the guy from Breaking the Market. He's like an engineering manager at a big engineering company. So he's like, you know, the, um, the paragon of how to be as rational and mechanistic as possible. Emotions have a lot of potential. They can, if, you, if you deploy them correctly and if you avoid deploying them incorrectly, there's a lot of power, motivational power. I think it's, it's, we, we need to consider it, I think, because you know, ego is massive for this one. Like, I, I think, you know, a simple idea like naming after you, this is not, this is not the dynasty, this is Ben's dynasty. Like, you need to, because again, you're putting the, the, um, the incentive in the present is what you're doing there it's like i get to call this ben's dynasty which then i know that this is going to live on beyond me and there's like a ben's billions yeah ben's billions like we'll give it a name and it'll become a norm um we're already just inventing a name makes the behavior feel less weird so we should just give this behavior that we're doing um a name to start with would be a really great start because it's now like designated drivers the example that always comes up if that was a a word invented by behavioral scientists that now makes it socially permissible for you to not be drinking because and that was invented by and then it was you know uh spread through um through soaps was how this this term came up because before it was like a bit you know why why are you drinking a coke mate like why why, why are you drinking like so just inventing a term would be a great great start but just on this um future generations thing it just reminded me of um the, the watch company patek philip um they have a lovely line which is you never actually own a patek philip you merely look after it for the next generation. That's the sort of stuff you need because this now you've reframed it from this watch you own, which is really expensive now, as something that is never lost. You don't lose it. It merely flows through the generations because that's the key thing is actually the loss aversion. Because if I'm never going to see this, what's the point? Where's the payoff for me? So this is starting to get you to think in like in a different different way about this. There's a reward from being a good custodian. Mm. Exactly. And it, it may be, yeah, for sure, for sure. It, I think so. It's, it reminds me of um, parents moving countries for their kids and things. Like they've really, it's not about them. They, they're doing it for the kids or for the, the kids' kids, you know, future generations. And so people can make these sacrifices, um, but you need to sort of elevate it to something transcendental, like I mean, the US Army does this, you know, you are fighting not just for, not fighting for the sake of this, you're fighting for freedom, you're fighting for um, liberal democracy, um, is, is what you're fighting for ISIS as well, you're not fighting for the sake of it, you're fighting for this thing you stand up to. 
So like you need to have this thing that we're all fighting for, which is a bit transcendental, which goes beyond all of us. It's really where you need to start to, you need to like get people to thinking like beyond just the, the, the small timescales. Yeah. To me, something clicked there because there's an immediate reward if you are constantly recognized for being a good custodian. Hmm. Exactly. You're, you're seen by everybody around you as not messing it up. I mean, that's a sounds like a terribly low bar, but at least there's some recognition for, uh, sorry, a potential for reward in the now. I like the high-level concepts and the um, goals and ideas that are larger than oneself and some, some sort of larger objective to go to, but you can also turn it, the conversation towards the mechanics of things. And one of the first things that you mentioned, David, was uh, a subscription model, for example. And if you've ever subscribed to Netflix or a magazine, the way that works is essentially you sign up and then there's no further action on your behalf that is required. The transactions happen in the background. Each month, $10 or, or $15 is taken out of your account. And that's a really interesting model and a very useful model, I would suspect, because it doesn't require you then to do any forward or proactive action going forward. And you could apply that to, you know, whether it's a Vanguard investment fund or, or whatever it may be, um, just to have that constant money being pulled out of your account. It's a set mm. model that you could apply. And then I guess the next challenge, once you set it up for yourself, is then having some way for that to legally transition onto the next generation. Um, so I do like the idea of the bigger goals and something bigger than yourself um, and, and developing that culture within your own family. But you can also start thinking about things as a um, set and forget model, a subscription model. So that ties Absolutely. to the... Completely. This is, I, I think, will be key to all of this is you need to sort of have these reasons for you doing it, which is a reason you tell other people. But the actual behaviour, we want to remove as much behaviour as possible from this. Like, ideally, this is, um, we call it making a default, you know. Can we, uh, even just making decisions for people, you know, as far as possible, you know, um, pre-filled boxes, pre-filled everything. So it's really just press it and go. I think it would be critical to this because it, it can't be something that you manage because, like I mentioned before, you know, I want to fiddle. If if my investment, I'm going to fiddle with it because you just, you want to. Um, so anything to just automate this would, would be fantastic and separate it from your own account. So you never really see, you never can play with it, you know, lock it in. Even like adding more friction to to even touch this account would be a thing. If it might be, usually we're, we're saying, you know, remove friction, remove friction, remove friction, but actually friction is good sometimes. Like make it difficult for you for you to really like go in and fiddle with your things, you know, maybe require a different family member or, you know, three, three, you know, three fact authentication or, or something like make it difficult for you to play with it. Like maybe you have to walk 50 meters before you- Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And people don't mind this when it's for the behaviors that they're trying to do. Like my gym app, for example, I don't mind my gym app being addictive in the same way that I might be a bit annoyed at Facebook for trying to hack my dopamine. But actually people wouldn't mind if their Duolingo or their, their gym app was, was sort of playing on this. So I, I think you are completely right there. Actually, I think there's more to be done with goals as well, which I know you've touched on before with, um, in the second one, we had a psychologist on. I think this is also gonna be critical. Um, and I think maybe even breaking it down, like this is a billion goal, but that's really, really unachievable. That doesn't feel achievable. So can you like have tiered goals, for example? So you'll notice on uh, like Kickstarter, all, all these GoFundMe type websites, it's like, we're, we're almost there, we're 85% towards a thousand. Um, and then, oh, it just it happens like, oh, we're now 24% towards 5,000. And the progress bar is always like 85% there. This is because the goal gradient effect, which essentially says that as we approach a goal, when we put more effort towards it. So the example for this is usually Starbucks loyalty cards. You know, there's, they give you, they give you um, 12 stamps, but the person will go stamp, stamp when you get it, give you a sense of progression, you, you complete it 20% faster. But my favorite example is rats will literally run faster towards food as they approach it. So 
how can we do this? We, we need to like make little mini, like um, mini milestones, which can be as small as, well done, you did your first thousand, your first 2000 or your first, first million, because that is way more, way more motivating than just this thing you never tap away at. You never, you never see any dent on the progress bar. That, Definitely, because then you get the reward. With that, would you need to make sure you're setting that, those goals based on your um, your actual uh, contribution to the fund rather than the actual performance of the fund overall? Because you you know you are playing in the in the stock market, so you may get a couple of years where you have negative mm. results. And I'm wondering whether that would have um, negative motivation on, on an individual. That's a really interesting point, actually, because if your progress bar is going like up, 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 and then there's a big crash, and it for like five, ten years, it's now in reverse. You you made a really good point there. That would not be motivating. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, why am I doing this? I'm literally losing money. So maybe maybe it should be on um, contribution, but it doesn't even matter what the goals are. To be honest, like as long as as long as they're there, you're working towards something, which may just be invented like i don't know linkedin when you put your profile it's like your profiles all start like what does that mean there's there's your, your profile is expert and then there's one above that like the point is to have these things because then you, you work towards them and then you achieve them you go to the next one would would yeah it just feels like it, this needs it needs chunking up to be honest because otherwise it's just completely unmanageable sure uh, sorry if I looked like I was distracted. I, I just realized there's so many um, good concepts you, you're mentioning. I'm just taking some notes. So what I've got so far is combi, goal gradient, mini milestones, friction, the nine forms of time, which was Zimbardo's research, and I'm going to note that down, uh, just that researcher. I think we better do some reading there. Um, and uh, reward through being a good custodian. Mm. Have I missed any? Friction. Friction, I got that. Friction. I mean, it's and there was chunks. Uh, yeah, I think also just uh, smaller briefs, more manageable briefs to start with. If, if you're yeah. tackling this, you're going to have to chop up this this challenge. Otherwise, it's just it's way too big. Like, yeah. I think an, another provocation might be like, if we're talking about the, the design of this, the, the scheme or whatever, um, what is the design of the environment? Can we do something that because this is always this really big influence, which we don't look at so much. Like, how, how is your, how is your living setting? How is your, um, everything in your life pointing towards this behaviour? Would just be it's a provocation to put out there. Like, I mean, what one idea I had was that, like, for retention, it's, um, you know, can we make this tangible? Can we make the sense progression more tangible than just a progress bar on there? Like, do you send people something every year? So you've got like a book or something, or not quite a certificate, but um, do you know, are you familiar with the Mr. Men books, which as they line up, it creates um, a word? Right. Have you seen this? Oh, I have no. So Mr. Men books, I don't know if you're familiar from my childhood, was um, these books, and they're just characters. Um, but as you, as, you, as you buy one, there's like a little piece on the spine, which as you buy more of them, creates a whole scene, which a word that completes itself, for example. So what you might want to do here is like okay let's send people like a book every year or something which goes on their mantelpiece which they can show this is good for social norming because you see that well you're now norming the behavior you're making it permissible for other people because you see that oh you've got that thing but you know could we do something where we have what we call the incompleteness uh, completeness effect where we, we love to make things line up so with these books you know might you might they make a scene that only completes if you keep going with this behavior for example so, you know, by creating a sense of incompleteness with this physical object, so it lines up properly, only if you keep the behavior going. Like, I was thinking, because it's like a physical progress bar, right? Like uh, a water bottle, I think is a great example. Like I have this two liter bottle of water um, and I can see as a progress bar, what my completion rate is. And it's very physical, you know, I didn't even app for that. So like make it tangible something in, in, in your in your environment which is making this behavior more likely just feels like an interesting interesting mm. thing to to think uh, about I don't know what the answer yeah. is I always think because you know um, th th this is a funny way to put it but you know um, it, in movies you get like like a, a prisoner marking 
um, you know, mm. months or days on the yes. wall. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's there's a billionaire prison. <laughs> yeah, like you're, you're facilitating the behaviour and you're you're walking towards it. And the key thing is you're you're moving forward. There's like a sense of progression to this, which is what we uh, actually. Want. It reminds me of um, when I was a young eager geospatial analyst working at Fleur on a, on a gas pipeline project. And the only thing that was meaningful for me was saving up for a Buell motorbike. And mm. I, I printed out a nice A3 color image of it. And I sectioned it off into eight sections that I um, sort of hatched out each month as I saved the chunk of money towards buying the whole bike. It turns out I've never bought one because I, I went overseas for a, a, a placement in another job and I gave mm. up on that goal. <laughs> Wow, but that yeah. was one way that I tried to make the the progress towards it tangible by you know just um, sections of the image of the bike. Yeah, well, I mean that that's like that's great. You know, that is a physical progress by sense progression. But you said I just want to explore that more. You said you stopped it when you moved to another place. Yeah, I, I was. I did a placement in Cambodia with Engineers Without Borders, so I went from. Basically, I was earning 10% of the salary. It was just, you know, enough to survive in Cambodia whilst you, you know, did good. Um, and then I came back and six months later, I was off to Kuwait. Um, I could have bought the bike on a, a one-month salary <laughs> when I was there. Um, and I did end up getting a bike, but it, it wasn't that one. And it's a pity, actually, because I really love that bike. Maybe I should. Well, it's never too late for a midlife crisis, you know, it's early. <laughs> Um, it's just, what made me think of there is that, you know, um, habits die in new environments is something I've learned, essentially. I, I was wondering if that was a thing, which then made me think of the other thing, which is the fresh start effect, um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but essentially people are way more likely to make um, start new behaviours at temporal landmarks. So really, at I mean, landmarks? temporal, time landmarks. Temporal landmarks, yep. So phases in time and example that people tend to give is like uh gyms more people sign up to gyms on mondays or you know january is the first month of the year people do a load of effort into like developing themselves um but actually they're kind of boring examples so i, I looked into this a, a while back and i came across some research which found that people's people whose birthdays end in nine are way more likely to do certain behaviors because they are you know 19 year old 29 year old 30 39 year old you're, you're not quite 40 but you're just on the cusp and so from memory in a selection of 500 marathon runners you're 47 percent more likely to have a nine ending birthday in just a selection like we wouldn't expect this many but there's for some reason 47 percent more nine ending birthday people here and that could be 29 39 89 um another one is infidelity websites um 17 <laughs> more likely to have nine enders and they did other research to see if it was like um is it because people put their fake name as for fake age is there but it's, it's not actually people tend to put zeros or fives so that it's a thing even suicide is one you're like i think it's, it's like 0.34 per 100,000. it goes like 0.45 so it's like two percent increase i think um you're yeah, more likely at a temporal landmark so like the provocation here is like what landmarks can we use that when when is the best moment to like be asking people to make these changes which may be, you know, it may be more effective if instead of asking a 28-year-old, ask a 29-year-old or like your birthday, what's happening in your birthday? Key points, you know, when you graduate university, when you start a new job, these are the moments that we need to be like reaching people and telling them, do you want to start this new behavior? Like that's, mm. that's the most opportune moment we could, we could start this. Mm. It's all about prompting. And, and this reminds me of the chat we had with the, uh, another psychologist, uh, Joy LaRay, um, and we we brought up the the idea of using her to help design an app. And what she she mentioned as the main thing that the app could do was to give constant feedback. And that, by the way, also relates to the interview we had with Ross Bentley, who was the race car driver uh, coach. And he talked about how he actually had a little formula. Um, which, what was it? What was the formula again, Ben? I my memory is something along the lines of practice. It was about mental imagery, right? And if you, 
Ah, like if you make it um, more visible in the mind, you're more likely to do the behavior. Yeah, it was, you, you'll reach a goal if you have a clear, um, if, if it's clear, which you mentioned uh, at the start, uh, we won't get anywhere unless we have a clear description of what the, the target is. But um, you need constant feedback um, plus awareness, and that will get you to the goal. But if you don't have the awareness of the difference and constant awareness of the difference between the mental image, which is what you want to happen, and mm -hmm. constant awareness of the, the divergence between that state and your current state, you won't reach the goal. And basically yeah. what Joy was saying was that what an app can give you is in your hand all the time, you know, this vibrating thing. Um, it can literally vibrate and interrupt reality for you mm. uh, to, to give you, um, and, and also if those messages could be delivered in an addictive way. I don't know, I, yeah. I just... No, for sure, for sure that, that is, it's like the whole progress bar thing. It's like, I, I was there, I'm now here. We just need this sense of progression, which really is just, that's describing feedback. You know, the, the lived experience of progression is just feedback. We're zooming out and seeing a progress bar, but lived experience is a ping to say, you're here, you're doing great, you know? You probably, we can learn a lot from apps actually, um, social media, any, any Duolingo, your streaks, for example. Streaks would be a great thing for this behavior. You know, you've been, you've been doing this for how many days in a row, months in a row, paydays in a row. Like it's the only thing challenge with streaks is there's a backfire effect when you lose one. So I know two people who did Duolingo for like a year, an entire year. But, you know, one day they, you know, like for my dad, he went on holiday. Um, he didn't do it for a, a few days, has not touched Spanish in like two years. Another friend who had, again, was like two years into a Duolingo streak every single day for like 700 days. Um, and then he was super hungover on the first day of 2020. Um, and he just didn't have the physical capability to do the behavior and he's not touched it since there's a strong backfire effect you need actually forgiving streaks is what you need so it's like oh you almost miss your streak you've got a second chance to make it right now right you need to build that in otherwise forgiving streak. yeah yeah because otherwise it's so demotivating like you've literally lost like <laughs> 20 years of your life if you just don't do the behavior once yeah this is also so ben and i spent so long before we even started recording episodes, um, we, we thought a lot about this. And, and one thing that came up frequently was how can we basically, because uh, poker machines are designed to use the sorts of things you've been mentioning to hack the human mind. Also, um, there's a bunch of uh, social proofing uh, that goes on, I, I think in the casino environment too, to, it's like, we're helpless almost. And what Ben and I wanted to do was to use all the same effects mm. and to create a device. Um, and we've even, we, we found a, through our, our investing network, um, we found a, um, a developer actually, he's French, um, but he's living in, in New York, I think. Um, and we had a couple of discussions with him about even developing an app. Um, mm that basically will be like a reverse poker machine mm. and yeah. compound people's money in their pockets rather than using a bunch of um, uh, hacks and uh, deception to compound what they should be using to generate a nice retirement for themselves in the poker machine owner's pocket. Yes, completely. What you're talking about there, um forgive me if this is you already, you seem like you're very familiar with this already, is um, variable rewards versus fixed rewards. And I don't know if Operant you- Operant conditioning. Yes, well, specifically, um, I don't know if you read this book, Hooked, um, but if this is where it describes it, how to build habit-forming products. And this is gonna be on Facebook's desk, Twitter's desk, any app designer's desk, basically. And this is how do you design habit-forming products. And what you're talking about there is um, making rewards variable because fixed rewards are like, okay, you know, for example, if I open my fridge and there's always going to be, I don't know, a tiramisu there, like that's, that's fun for a bit. Nice reward, but I expect it. But it's way, way more motivating if I open my fridge and there's a trifle, you know, open my bid fridge, there's no, there's, there's no food out, there's nothing there. 
and open up um, again and it's like, I don't know, it's a bag of dog poo. The next one is two trifles. The next is 10 trifles. Like that is way more addictive like the slot machine because it's, it's variable. And what happens in your brain is you get, you get dopamine as you anticipate the reward. Like, is yeah. there going to be a reward? Is there going to be a reward? And then you get another shot as you open it and there is reward. And Twitter does this really well. When you, when you open up your notice, it takes like a split second for your notifi- notification. I've noticed that. It's very deliberate because it's not, you know, it's not because it's loading or anything like that. It's because as, as you're waiting that split second, you get a shot of dopamine where you're like, does someone love me? I totally and do. And then you get it. Like, so you can really play with this and it makes it addictive. So like, if you are going to do an app, because it feels like we're going to need some institution almost, you're going to have to build a brand for this. You have to make this a thing. So it feels like a something. That, how can we make the rewards variable, you know, beyond, you know, they can be psychological rewards as well. It doesn't have to be physical rewards. Like money is the outcome, but, you know, make it variable. Sometimes give them triple rewards, give them no rewards sometimes. The point is you want to make the slot machine um, for, yeah, how can, we, how can we get a slot machine going basically is, is what we should be doing. What are some of the rewards that you could have in that type of that? Because when you play a poker machine, the reward is some sort of cash back to yourself. Um, when you go on Twitter, you said the reward is some sort of social interaction. For example, someone's mm. either liked one of your comments or they've made a response to one of your comments. Um, I, I, we'll need to think about that a little bit more, won't we, Bill? What will that the novelty of the reward be? It's, I think it, there's two ways to think about this, um, is physical rewards. So something, you know, this is the sort of thing where say, say this was through you, there was like a slight fee you took, a tiny, tiny fee, but this was now meant you could keep your servers running. And, you know, what's the thing you send? Like we mentioned, how do we send something physical to them? It could be that, that could be some sort of reward. We know that companies do this subscriptions, they'll send you like, oh, here's a free something, you know, whatever, like, um, but the other way to think about this is psychological rewards. You know, what is something that is psychologically compelling, which it's working for a bank who is trying to acquire students um, in South Africa. And one thing we looked at was like, there's a lot of reward, a lot of um, pride around these people graduating. So like the psychological reward is like, how do I make, how do I show, how do I make my mum proud basically? And there's a lot of things around this. So this is the, the picture of the you graduating in your gowns and all of that. That's a psychological reward as, as much as anything. So like, how can we get more of those sort of behaviors was the provocation um, for how to think more about this. And even badges, things like that, you know, they're, they're trivial and you, you talk about them, but the behavioral outcome is not true. The social point of this is um, like, I've written notes, like cohorts, you know, with the assumption is through your family actually, but um, we know that accountability buddies are really, really powerful for doing behaviours. So does it have to be within your family? Because there's so many other social things with this. Like one is, um, well, finally, you need to get your partner on board with this is is really big. This is critical because it's like, this takes a village is one way to think about it, to do this behaviour. Um, who's going to keep you accountable, especially if there's a membership thing to this? And then it's like, how do we, you know, what can we learn from private, private um, clubs, for example? It's invite only. That makes it 10 times more interesting than if there's anyone who just walk in. Like there's actually, you, you, we want this to be for everyone, you know, democratizing, but there's also a strong argument for making this. We, we want as much as poker machines are for everyone. We want this to be for everyone. Sorry yeah. to butt in. <laughs> well, this is it. There's, there's, a, there's a two sides to this, which is like, we want this to be democratized. Everyone can do this. But there's also the point that it's way more motivating if it feels a bit exclusive if you can make this feel slightly exclusive, like making an invite only, for example, there's benefits of that in that, for example, your acquisitions, your people you sort of bring into this are way more likely to be um, the sort of right people who would who would be successful in this because you know people who would be good for this. You do the hard work. Um, and it's like Clubhouse was invite only, membership clubs, you know, there's a lot to be learned from that. I need to feel part of the tribe. And I think you mentioned before, like, um, we're not making a cult here. And it's like, True, you're not. But to be honest, you might you should learn a lot from cults. You know, look look into the mechanism that they use. You know, what how do they solve the same problems? Because you're not making a cult, but you know, religion is another one. Like they've literally built cathedrals around 
facilitating this behavior. So yeah. what can we learn from that? You know, what is what is our equivalent of a cathedral? You know, these things are in every town and city, like well, yeah. city that makes a city. But like cohorts, it's networks, it's stickiness because it's not just because of them, not because you lose money, it's now because oh, I lose my access to these people. Like tribes, how can you make a stronger tribe? How do you signal to the in-groups, you know, really subtly um, that we're part of the same thing? Like internationally, like tattoos, I don't know. Yeah, you, you, you know, gangs, what can I from gangs? They have tattoos, like- Five club. You see Pardon? martial yeah, arts, for example. Yeah. Pardon? I was just going to say, you see it in martial arts where um, they have those different ranks. You, you go from a yellow belt to a green to a black, and it shows competency, but there are mm. also that prestige associated with having one of the higher colours. Um, that's the type of... No, exactly. Like, they've solved the problem over there. What can we learn from that? I was thinking about your idea of having uh, physical rewards as well. And one of the ideas that I initially had for that would be that if you are part of this club or this group that you, um, just a small percentage of your actual um, portfolio is skinned off the top and it goes into a pool of, of funds. And the more that you adhere to the rules, and those rules are essentially investing more, then you collect some of that funds and, and, the, and mm. people that aren't able to maintain um, that consistency, that, that, that streak um, approach that you talked about, um, then they're penalised by not getting some of those funds, for example. Mm. It would have to be quite minor. It would have to be either an initial contribution, $50 or whatever it may be, or a skimming off, off the top of the portfolio, um, something obviously a lot less than 1%, but um, can't up too much of a penalty. But I'm just wondering if that would work because that sort of falls into that um, poker machine methodology where everyone's contributing ultimately or, or lottery um, approach where everyone's contributing and someone's getting, or many people are getting through the right behaviour um, access to some of that pool. Mm, yeah, I... That, yeah, that's a really interesting idea because, again, you're just putting some of the rewards in the present. It's not leaving it to 109 years later. You're putting some of them. Like, it almost makes me think, like, 108, but 109, you get to spend it. That's true. <laughs> what a year that's going to be. Like, so oh, my God. It's like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, oh, this behavior. It's, it's, it's crazy. So how can we do something? And one sort of dumb idea which I think you've just sold actually was that like what if this is not three generations this is a four generation task but the, the agreement is well you're doing a lot of work here you're going to get a percentage of this it's going to take longer but the point is by you doing this at least you can still buy this you can you're not you're not losing anything like the the chunk the main part of this is for investing for the future but like a little bit you do get to spend while you're alive seeing as you are doing this behavior it could be the custodian reward of the or the recognition mm. custodian is yeah. a, an interesting way of framing it actually because it's it's the looking after for is it's just yeah it sounds a bit stuffy but well, this is where you'd, you'd have a you think about what this is and you maybe do some testing and you what you want a, a name i think is critical to this because it just it normalizes the behavior basically um, yeah, uh, the app's going to be called Investment Machine. Investment Machine is it actually, or is this just floating around? I, I want that to be the name of the app. Uh, we haven't oh, decided what the name of the app is. I think we'll just throw that out just then. So, because yeah. it's a, it's a riff on Poker Machine. Uh, I, like in Australia, it's I think we have some of the worst rates of uh, gambling in Australia. And a lot of it's driven by poker machines. Mm. There was actually a Tasmanian politician who ran, ran on an anti-poker machine platform. Um, yeah. I, mm. Maybe it's not the, the, the scourge of poker machines is not um, uh, uh, as big of a, an issue um, for people in other countries. So maybe they don't understand. Um, yeah. I think, you know, you want this name to be sticky. You want it easy to talk about in conversation. Um, 
as as much as possible um you know simple simple word that feels you know universal because also like maybe even how does it translate to other languages you know this is a yeah. thing um yeah i think this is where you you know i can't promise to like solve these things but this is where you would then get someone who really knows what they're talking about you know branding who names products or whatnot things like that like it's, it's worth the investment to get a, a strong name that makes us feel sticky um and there's great TED talks on this, of like how to name products. You know, is it something abstract? Like, for example, Microsoft Office. It's not literally an office, but it's um, it's where office things happen. It's what you know, office behaviors. You know, PowerPoint, Excel, all of that. But like Skype, made up word. Uh, or like machine. Here you're talking about machine. As you put something in, comes out. You know, black box does its magic. Boom. Money so, machine. <laughs> yeah, like, and also think of like how's this gonna survive 108 years because we can't yeah i mean it's, i don't know blockchain or something or anything technological might quickly age um, i think maybe what the, what you've brought up is how we need to change from the goal of 108 years to it just being a way of life mm, yeah honestly maybe 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 it is it's more like a lifestyle choice a bit like you know christianity or you know, the alpha course or any of these things, like I'm doing this thing, like, cause you want to fuse it to people's identities as well, as much as possible, which is why this transcendental thing is so powerful. Cause it's like my brothers in arms, this is me. And then you need these strong delineated things. Like I am, I am someone who invests. I'm someone who is building a dynasty, like all of these things, which fuse it to your identity. You really, which is where the tribes come in because that's when you can then make it feel like I'm part of something. But you know, maybe lifestyle is is the way. It's definitely because it has. To, it is literally your life. Like mm. if this is and something. That, yeah, and, and that bring that that shows how important it is to have some interim rewards, um, so that you're not living as a monk in a cave on water and mm. uh, rice. Yeah. With yeah. Mobile phone and app. That's buzzing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just salivating <laughs> over the responses from your phone <laughs> as, yeah. you, as you sip your water. <laughs> yeah. That, that was actually really great input, David. I, I do appreciate that. But we've just got a couple last questions to, to cover. The first one is something that we always ask us. What is our mental hygiene equivalent of washing your hands that everyone should do in your view? Oh, that's, that's a really good question, this. Uh, mental hygiene equivalent of washing your hands. Oh. Do you know, and there's so many ways you could go about this question. Um, and they all sound kind of lame, but that's why they're washing hands is kind of lame, but it's good, you know. Uh, I think one is, you know, smiling is something that I found is so, so valuable. Like, I've literally got... I've got opportunities just from being the only one smiling when everyone else is mis miserable, just, I think is, is really key. That's something I've really learned actually that it does just keep a smile, you know, and it spreads again at net network level. But that feels like one for sure, but that also feels really lame. Um, That's you know, fine. I, I, I sometimes forget to smile myself and yeah. it can have an effect on you, just yourself. I mean, I'll just, we shouldn't get into this it's fascinating research into like how actually well, i might as well you know um people with botox will actually they can't see they can't empathize as well as other people the reason why is because when when i smile it pings something in your brain which makes you smile because mirror neurons um but people with botox they like it's sort of um it paralyzes the face a bit so your muscles can't move and so now when I smile, you don't smile back because your brain doesn't, you can't move your thing. So actually they, it then ping, it doesn't, you don't get the ping for your brain. This person is smiling at me. They must be happy. I must be happy. And so when you give them a task, like, um, I don't know, uh, identify these faces. What emotions are they? People with Botox or a constrained face with it, but like clay mask on them do so much worse at this. It's like, it's amazing how, how, you know, it's poor, sad Botox people. <laughs> it's, it's really it's shocking, actually, just because you can't move your face, you um, you can't empathize as much. Hmm. But you so know, the, people, 
just to explain that, so the people that actually had Botox done, they couldn't understand other people's emotions as well? Was that what you were saying? Yeah, because they can't move their face because your face needs to move to ping your brain to tell you that I must be happy. They must be happy. Like, it's like the mirror. Your face is the mirror. So, I mean, then then they do other things. It's not just people who have Botox. So they, they try, like, people who've had another facial thing which puffs up their lips but doesn't paralyze or clay masks um was an, another one and even one where they i think they put like glue or something in people's faces which meant that you had to strain further to make it so you you, you did more more motion in your face and they actually got better at the task like it's crazy like but i think it's those to, experiments get through the ethics committee <laughs> mostly, like it's not as bad as the Stanford prison experiment. <laughs> yeah. It's come a long way. But yeah, go on, we'll stick with smiling there because I think it is, I've just found it's, it's so valuable in this. But the only other one I suggest is actually just a morning walk. I, I've done this every day for the last few months and like, so good. Honestly, it's, yeah. it's just underrated. Like, because once you've got this one habit, you can just keep stacking other ones. Like when I get mm. home, I will read a book. After I've read a book, but you need that first one. So like, oh, go for a morning walk. There we go. Great. As, as a, a foundation for building other healthy habits. That's great. Mm. Until 2000 years ago, human sacrifice was practiced by the Romans. We see this as something heinous now. What is something happening now that 2000 years into the future, people will think is heinous? Oh, do you know, I had a little skim because you sent this question through last night. I, I don't have a. I actually don't have an answer for this, but I, I recognise that we change this so often. Like the things that we found deplorable then, were like, oh, that's disgusting. We're normalised now. So like, I don't know. Yeah, think, you go the opposite way with the question too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really because there are plenty of things that people used to think was utterly abominable, which we totally do accept now. Yeah, I mean, that's also the, fine. This is now my view with um, anything where you have a more, um, I don't know, these more social uh, social justice type issues where like people, you know, um, I don't know, for example, um, homosexuality, I think we broadly accepted as a culture, but there's still things like trans rights, which people have not quite accepted. And I just think, well, do you know what? In 20 years time, are we gonna have a different perspective? And are we gonna be like, oh, Jesus Christ. So like. Any issues, for example, rights, rights for machines, right, is something that is, is something that's come up. Like at some point they're gonna get so smart that they essentially are like us. Should they have rights? And at this point, I can discount that completely. I'm like, no, it's a it's a machine. But then I think, do you know what? Same way we used to talk about um, any other social issue, are we gonna have the same view in a hundred years' time, potentially? And we would have now acclimatized that view. So it's actually really difficult to to say this, but I mean, one just to top of head, it feels like it feels like toilet paper is a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. We're literally chopping down trees. Like it feels ridiculous. Um, I mean, maybe the other point to make is that so many behaviors are still going to be the same in 2000 years. Yeah. And this is where behavior change, behavior science comes in. It's like blockchain, all of that stuff, being here for five minutes might be here for five minutes. But, you know, reciprocity, if I do something nice for you, you'll do something nice. Being here for 10,000 years, I'm confident it will still be here in 10,000 years. Same with your dopamine receptors. Like a, a variable reward is going to be the same in 2,000 years. Yeah. That, the value is like where I'm playing it. I'm playing in a space of constants pretty much because we, we change at such a slow pace. So um, I didn't answer your question. I did seven different anecdotes. Um, I didn't notice. It's all good. I guess 2,000 years from now, it will be illegal and heinous to execute a robot. Mm. It honestly could be. Yeah. Not just because the investment that it took for that robot. It might be because we now value its intelligence at Mm. such a high level. Mm. It will be inhumane not to Mm. treat it like a human. Yeah. I mean, already we have a sanctity to this, you know, if it's, a mum will say, don't shout at Alexa. It's like, that's really interesting. Like it's, it is just a robot, but we sort of recognize that it's wrong to treat things badly. Like 
yeah, like you, if someone was abusing an animal, we like, no, don't do that. But like, sure, it's the same, Abu abusing Alexa. Um, That's the first flicker of humanity. Yeah, and I, I think so. I think yeah, that that feels like a feels like it. We're not there yet, but like, if you we see the way things are going, probably. Amazing, David. Thank you. Has been fun. Just to wrap up, um, if people want to get in contact with you, David, feel free to, to let us know. Yeah, I think my the best place you can always find me is, is Twitter. That's where I'm I most spend a lot of my time. Big fan of Twitter. So you can find me um, at utterly David on Twitter. Um, I tweet about behavioral science, systems thinking, networks, and uh, general tomfoolery of the day. So yeah, utterly David on Twitter.